fair warning, this show contains strong language and adult themes from time to time. Sorry, Jerry can't help it. Sick Boy Wolfgang Productions presents The Offering with Jerry Horror. A deep dive into the history of film and its filmmakers. Mostly horror, always genre. If you're anything like me, you're always on the lookout for cool, new, original gift items that you could give to your horror and genre-obsessed loved ones, or even something you could get to treat yourself. I found the perfect thing for you, Geek Emporium has custom hand-etched glass art that's the perfect gift. Believe me, when you see these glass mugs, glass jars, and original prints, you're gonna want all of them for your own collection. Geek Emporium covers every genre you can imagine. Marvel, Star Wars, 80s and 90s horror. I'm looking through the website right now, geekemporium.nyc, and I can see featured, they got some gorgeous stuff from Labyrinth with Jennifer Connelly, a Nightmare Before Christmas, I see Brandon Lee's The Crow. They cover the whole genre gamut. It, it's incredible. I met up with these guys at Eternal Con on Long Island. I got my hands on a Sweet Texas Chainsaw Massacre Leatherface glass mug and a, a Freddy Krueger wooden coffin, all custom. And these are hand drawn. They were drawing it right in front of me. So what are you waiting for? You can always check out their Etsy shop or head over to geekemporium.nyc right now and scroll through the goods. Trust me, your geek-loving loved one will thank you later. Stay spooky all year long at Strange Love Parlor, Long Island's exquisite oddities and curiosity parlor in Lindenhurst, New York. They've got some ghastly apparel. Strange Love Parlor supplies an array of goth jewelry, unisex horror-themed gear, Halloween accoutrement, monstrous purses and wallets, spooky pins, patches, and stickers, providing you with the most wonderful and the most strange of treasures. Visit Strange Love Parlor regularly to find the item of your dreams, or perhaps even your nightmares. Grab your ghoul gang and visit today. Strange Love Parlor in Lindenhurst, Long Island, New York. Welcome to The Offering with Jerry Hara, the show where we can have a quiet and frank discussion as adults about the things that matter to me, or at least that I think matter to me. Please take a moment to subscribe to our show wherever you get fine podcasts, and hey, stay up to date on future episodes. This week on The Offering, we're taking you back to 1988 with A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. Ladies and gentlemen and friends from Beyond the Binary, welcome back to The Offering with me, Jerry Hara. That's right. It's season two and we got this bitch rebuilt. So glad you're here. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with me and I appreciate that. I genuinely do. It has been crazy. If you've been following all the stuff that's been going on, I talked about it in the Friday the 13th Super Special, my battle with anxiety and depression and everything that I've been through in the last year just to get back to this moment right now to be recording and doing what I love, it means a lot to me. Your support means a lot to me. So I want to thank you uh, at the top for that. 
we have to make sacrifices. Today, I got producer slash seducer Pete with me. And I said, fuck it. I'm going to take the day off from work. I'm going to lose a day's pay because I'm going to chase what I believe in. And I believe that I can do this. I believe that you enjoy this. And uh, it's my passion. So there's no way that I'm going to go down without a fight. I wanted to make sure that I was going to provide you guys with some serious ass insight into some amazing films. See, season two, we had to raise the stakes because that's kind of what you do with sequels. There has to be escalation of events. So in order to turn up the flames in this motherfucker, we, uh, we decided to take you back to 1988. All of the films we cover this season will be all about 1988 and the films that it gave birth to. It's a wild year, okay? There's a ton of horror sequels. Like, everybody gets a horror sequel this season. It's insane. I don't even want to give it away. So, with that being said, season two, it's 1988, and I'm going to take you back there. I really don't have a lot much more to say. I want to get into this. I want to get dirty with y'all because this is what I enjoy doing. So I want to let you know that I'm all right. I'm doing better. I'm doing the best I can just like everybody else. A little side note, the song that was burning up the charts at the time of this release, well, the release of this film, was Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. Okay? Just put you in the framework of where we are because on today's show... We're going to talk all about the time that Freddy Krueger ruled the world. Welcome back to 1988. It's time for me to tell you all about when Freddy Krueger ruled the world. A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors came out February 27th, 1987. It was a landmark success. They had brought Wes Craven back to write that movie, and it paid off in spades. Chuck Russell, who would later go on to direct The Mask, among many other great films, he knocked it out of the park. And I think they found the footing that they could firmly cement Freddy Krueger on. And you're going to find out that they call New Line Cinema the house that Freddy built. And there's a reason Freddie made a lot of money for that studio. And then after that, he birthed, obviously, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies, which made a shit ton of money, too. But before we get into all that, so, like I said, Elm Street 3 comes out, and it's this huge success. And I want you to think about this. Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, comes out August 19th, 1988. That's a mere 17 months. And these films are incredibly special effects heavy. When you look at who did the special effects for part four, it's like 30 people. And there's many more people who assisted, but you had different effects houses. It's like when we talk about Ghostbusters, they needed all these different effects houses because the special effects had become so complex. It's the same thing now with like digital animators. You need like three, four different houses doing different things at the same time just to complete the task of bringing the film in on time. And I'll let you know how confident New Line Cinema was at this point. They had a movie poster for Nightmare on Elm Street 4 before there was even a movie. So they had a title, The Dream Master. They had a movie poster, but they had no script and no director. 
Okay. However, one thing was for certain. If we had followed the Dream Warriors, this was going to give Freddy a more formidable foe in the Dream Master, even if they couldn't contextualize who the Dream Master was because the script hadn't been written. There was nothing really in place except that concept. Now, I want to let you know, we started off with this because Stranger Things, this new season that they did, season four, has been tremendous. And it is so obviously inspired, like Vecna and everything else that's going on in the show is totally inspired by A Nightmare on Elm Street. It's very obvious. But I want to let you know, if you weren't alive then, Freddy Krueger was everywhere. Once Elm Street 3 came out, there were toys. It was very aimed at children. We can all pretend like it wasn't. Um, there was the Marvel Comics, the magazine style that only had two issues. A Nightmare on Elm Street, and for all intents and purposes, Freddy Krueger was aimed at kids. And as a little kid at that time, I was eating it up. So, to put this in perspective, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 was the highest grossing horror film of 88. And we're going to be going through many more horror films that came out this year. But the big dog is Freddy Krueger. Do you know what terror is? Hello. Do you live here? Nobody lives here. Real terror. How long has it been since you've been on Elm Street? Welcome to a brand new nightmare. He is the first in fear. Will you help me? I'm sorry, someone help me, Second to none. Don't let them put you to sleep. He has no mercy. And no evil. Now no one sleeps. Get ready. This August, your wildest dreams will come true. How sweet, fresh meat. A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. The Dream Master. I mean, it's, it's the hottest year in horror. There were more horror movies produced in 88. It's insane. I'm not going to go through them all, but there was a lot of them. It was also the first year in which... All three of the top horror franchises had a movie. You had Elm Street 4, you had Friday the 13th Part 7, and you had Halloween 4. Those, those are the three main big ones that had a movie. And all those films released in the same year. I mean, it, it's crazy to think about that. Like, if you were a horror fan, you're getting Jason, Freddy, and Michael on the big screen. All in one year. You know, you think about that. It's, it's very almost comparable to these superhero movies now where you get all the superheroes. You got all your favorites on the big screen. Hey, going to throw in some fun facts here, folks. Fun fact number one, this is Robert England's favorite movie of the series. He had the most fun making this movie. He thinks it's the best movie. And I, I kind of agree with him. Here's my hot take. Everybody says Elm Street 3 is the best. I don't think so. I think this one is the best. I'm going to defend that throughout this episode. Look, in some ways, Elm Street 3 is a better movie, but 
Elm Street 4 is just a lot of fun. It's the fully realized concept of Freddy Krueger brought to its ultimate height. Okay. It's everything that's worked like on steroids and then throw in some LSD into the mix and it just gets crazier. So Dream Warriors was released again in February of 1987. It made $44 million domestically. It's not international and it's not video. These films were juggernauts on video on a budget of $4 million. So if you invested $4 million and let's just say $2.5 million and $6.5 million to promote the film and make it and you made $44 million, that's a pretty good return on your investment. And again, we're talking about 1988 money, so adjusted for inflation, it's like investing $8 million and making eighty. You know, that's that's a big number. Elm Street 3 was different. It's it's really weird because not up until New Nightmare, 3 was very favorably received by the critics. They really liked this movie. If for whatever reason, I, I think you just had it. You had Heather Langenkamp, you had John Saxon, you have even like, you know, like your smaller roles that were played by Larry Fishburne. Wes Craven wrote it. Chuck Russell's a great director. Patricia Arquette. All of this, all of these things just made like this maelstrom events to make a wonderfully big dish, an ambrosia, if you will, of a horror film. It all worked. Everything worked. So with that being said, when you invest $4 million and you make almost 50, there's got to be a sequel. So initially they go to Wes Craven, okay? And they're like, Wes, you know, you did such a great job with this third movie. How about you write this new one? And he's like, Wes was trying to get away from doing the nightmare stuff because I think it had already given him a, as much of a career boost as he had wanted. And he was like, I'm not really interested in directing. So he turns down the offer to direct and rewrite the script. New Line's like, you know, we, we thought, hey, we gave Wes Craven profit participation because that was what, let me be clear, the split between Wes Craven and New Line Cinema uh, owner Bob Shea, the real beef was that Wes Craven didn't get any participation profit. He made that first film and they made a ton of money off of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, which I think is a great movie, but they're still finding their footing as to what to do with Freddy Krueger and how to present him. And then three just solidifies it. Okay, this is how we're going to present this character. These are the types of stories we're going to tell. My parents were always very cool with the Freddy Krueger series because they felt that it was horror fantasy, which, you know, there's artistic merit to versus something that's more like a slice and dice movie, something like Sleepaway Camp, which I love, but nothing against it. You know, two different types of films. A couple of months go by. Wes Craven and his partner, Bruce Wagner, they come up with a concept for this film that involved time travel through dreams. So if we think about now in the context of the multiverse of madness, Wes Craven was already onto that shit. So Robert Shea and Sarah Reicher, who was the other executive over at New Line, they felt that this was too much of a high concept. They're like, no, like we buy the Dream Warriors thing, but time travel, Wes, that's too much. They didn't think it would fit the formula that Craven had created, 
which is is crazy to me because I don't know, Wes Craven's a genius. And if he comes in and he says he wants to do stuff with multiverse and time travel, and this is 1988, I don't know, maybe you should listen to Wes Craven, but they didn't. So without that creative control, Wes was like, I'm, I'm not coming back. Like I either, you're either going to let me write and direct and do this my way or nothing at all. And Bob Shea, being the businessman that he was, said, nothing at all will be fine for me. We'll find somebody else. Uh, Fun fact number two. The success of this film convinced producers to create Freddy's Nightmares in 1988. And again, the horse before the carriage, like I said, they had a movie poster before they had a movie. This is crazy. They had already signed the deals with the affiliates and the TV stations. Yeah, we're going to give you a Freddy's Nightmares TV show. And I'm not going to cover the Freddy's Nightmares TV show. Going to get into it a little bit. But they're kind of like, you know, if you've seen all the shows, like whether it's Tales from the Dark Side, The Twilight Zone, it's it's a, it, there's wraparounds with Freddy Krueger. And he's like, hey, kids, I'm going to tell you a scary story. And then we get to see some ridiculous thing play out. And a lot of the times it was like the quality of Saved by the Bell. It's endearing to go back and watch these episodes because some of them are crazy. They're like over the top. You should definitely required viewing, though. Watch the first episode of Freddy's Nightmares because it's directed by horror legend Toby Hooper uh, and has Robert Englund in it quite a bit. And it tells the whole backstory of A Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger and everything. It go, It's a prequel. And when I was a kid and I saw that first episode, I was like, oh, shit. Like, this is just getting deeper and deeper. Like, the third movie, they had introduced Freddy's mother. This is all around the same time. So you're getting this TV show. You you just learn the backstory that he's the bastard son of a thousand maniacs. Maybe it's a hundred maniacs. Whatever. It's inflation. Things go up, all right? It sucks. The reality of the fact is that now you've got Freddy Krueger on a weekly TV show. Robert Englund is haunting your television every week. And I love that first episode, man. That first episode of Freddy's Nightmares is good. And I was excited as a kid because I was like, oh shit, like every week it's going to be about Freddy Krueger. But it really wasn't. They would just go, he would shoot for 10 hours, do all the wraparounds. And that was kind of it. Like, you know, like a horror host does. I was a very disappointed little kid because that same year, Friday the 13th, the series comes out and goes to syndication. And it has absolutely nothing to do with Jason Voorhees, which was very disappointing. So the fact that the first episode of this show worked as a prequel and showed that, you know, he was this child killer, definitely some good stuff. Watch that first episode. The rest of the series, you're on your own. God, you know, God bless. Merry Christmas. So Bob Shea says, you know what? Now we talk about what's this whole season about. It's about escalation. Remember that. The budget is going to be $13 million. They spent $4 million on the last movie. I mean, I'm not too good at math, but I can tell you that's about $9 million more than you spent on the last film. I mean, it's one thing to double a budget, okay? It's one thing like, hey, we're going to make it for $8 million. But for $13 million, it was the most expensive Nightmare on Elm Street film at the time uh, until it got surpassed by Freddy vs. Jason, which would have a budget of $25 million. Fun fact number three. England would only do the film if, if, well, what did he want? What did Robert England want? He was going to get more money. He was getting some uh, some of the piece of the, the profit participation again of this. 
But the only way that he would do this movie, it's also the first film in the franchise where Robert Englund receives top billing in the opening credits. So it's right there. And a lot of this, what Englund had said was, uh, you know, goes back to Boris Karloff, you know. Boris Karloff said, okay, fine, I'll play, play Frankenstein's monster, but I want my name, you know, above the, above the credits. And I, I agree with him. Bela Lugosi wanted the same thing. You know, eventually everybody got it. You know, whether it was Peter Cushing or Vincent Price, they were top lining in these movies. But to think that you had to get to the fourth movie to inevitably say it's not the teenagers that, this, that are the stars of this movie. It's Freddy Krueger that's the star of this movie. Nobody wants to direct this movie. Nobody. Uh, I can't even tell you how many directors fall through. There was a list of names that they had, but they've kind of kept it quiet, I think, because of embarrassment. But they brought A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 to probably about 25 different directors. Now, enter Rennie Harlan. At this time, he had just done a movie called Prison with Kane Hodder. It's okay. It's Viggo Mortensen's in it in one of his early uh, performances. It's an okay movie. It's got some really creepy stuff in it and some fantastic uh, special effects by John Carl Beekler, who would also work on this movie and also direct a Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood. Rennie Harlan, okay, this is how he gets the job. He refused to take no for an answer. Rather than accept rejection, he instead showed up at the New Line Cinema offices like on a daily basis, reportedly for like a month or two. And he just kept requesting every day. He would go, he'd fall asleep on the couch, and he'd say, I'll, I'll wait for Bob Shea to come out of his office. Little did he know, Bob Shea had another door that he could kind of escape through, and he avoided uh, Rennie Harlan for that entire month. So for a variety of reasons, they didn't like any of the other directors who came in for the meetings. Bob Shea is just going through them. And Harlan seemed to always be around. So at a certain point after burnout, eventually his persistence won the day to some degree because he was so clearly impoverished. uh, I can't even say this word. Impoverished? Impoverished? I, I don't know. Maybe it's Yiddish. But basically he was broke. The guy was wearing the same clothes every day and he was starting to smell. So clearly he needed a W. Clearly he needed a job. But most of all, he needed a shower. So Bob Shea basically said, we got to give this guy the job, if not for the fact that he stinks and we can at least get him out of the office. So (laughs) he gets the job and he takes a shower and he buys some new clothes. And according to Rennie Harlan on this, Shea rarely ever spoke to him throughout the shoot. Even though he would visit the set quite often, um, he basically didn't think that Rennie Harlan could pull this movie off. It was a last-ditch effort. But one thing that he didn't do, and I credit Bob Shea to this, he didn't micromanage Harlan at all. So there's a there's a scene where Bob Shea comes in, and he does a cameo. And that day was a little bit difficult, because Harlan was able then to turn the tables on him and have the power, and kind of, you know, be like, hey, you, you can do it better, Shea. You know, kind of bully him a little bit. And the resulting tension meant that Harlan lived each day on set like it would be his last. So we're talking like insane 18-hour, 22-hour days where Harlan was just leading people like a dog sled. I mean, it's insane. 
So he thinks that he's going to get fired. He's like, this is it. He's like, I'm working on this film. It's the biggest budget they've ever worked with. It's, you know, it's the biggest film I've ever worked on. And he was, he was insistent. He's like, I'm going to be fired any day. So as a contingency plan, like he went to, you know, the assistant director and other people that were on set. And he's like, if I do get fired, like, I want you guys to finish this movie and this is what you need to do. So this is kind of crazy too. Rennie Harlan based this film on a Chinese ghost story, the 1987 film, which is highly influential. Uh, that's a Ronnie Yu film who would go on to direct Freddy vs. Jason. But a Chinese ghost story in Asia is like as influential as Sam Raimi's Evil Dead. It played for like a decade in Hong Kong, which is insane. It's a beautiful film. Like if you've never seen a Chinese ghost story, suck it up, read the, read the subtitles. It's a fantastic film. It's creepy as fuck. And it also gives you an idea of a ghost story through the eyes of a different perspective, you know, from a different culture. You know, what do they believe? Because there's a lot of different things, uh, you know, in the Chinese culture about ghosts. But Ronnie, you made one hell of a movie. Rennie Harlan saw that movie and said, okay, this is the direction we need to go through. So the original version that Rennie had of this film was considered to be too campy and ridiculous. He goes in with this treatment and he's like, this is what we got to do. And they're like, no, this, this is ridiculous. Which is why some cuts were made on the film before the theatrical release. Harlan went crazy and he had all these ideas and it sucks because there's so many things that he shot that we've never seen. And it's, I don't know, maybe it's sitting in a vault somewhere, but chances are we'll never see that footage or any of the crazier stuff that he shot. Uh, Harlan's original cut had an alternate score. And like I said, we're probably, I want to say there's probably about 20 to 25 minutes of cut scenes. That's insane. I mean, we're talking almost a full half hour of a movie and he had one of his friends come in who was from Finland. He did this score and they were like, no, this is, this is too crazy. We, we can't do this. There were more scenes with Kristen, including a nightmare scene where she's chased by Freddy soon after he had killed Joey and Kincaid in an extended version on the beach where Freddy's shadow is touching and burning her with sunburns. Small parts of these scenes actually made it into some of the initial trailers. You could also, if you were reading Fangoria magazine at the time, which was the fashion of the day, we were all reading it. You got to see some of the additional stuff that he had shot in, you know, the promotional stills. It was also an additional nightmare scene with Alice dreaming that her father turns into Freddy. It's widely believed by most fans who discovered these missing scenes that Harlan's original version is just completely lost. Uh, only the original script has all the deleted scenes. This isn't your typical show, folks. I'm not here to tell you the plot of A Nightmare on Elm Street 4. I'm not going to recount all the stuff. I'm just going through the production history because this movie was absolutely insane that you would spend in, in 1988 $14 million on a Freddy movie, which leads me to... Fun fact number four, New Line owner Bob Shea was worried that Rennie Harland wasn't able to pull it off, as I had said before. Now, here's the crazy part. They eventually became warm friends and have a father-son type relationship that lasts until this day. 
which is like the weirdest thing that these guys absolutely hated each other, almost killed each other. And then eventually they became friends and they have this really sweet and endearing relationship. So don't worry, folks. It all kind of worked out for everybody, but it didn't because Patricia ain't coming back. Patricia Arquette, who had been the star of A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, she wasn't having it. Now, there's a lot of different scuttlebutt. We're going to explore it. There's different sides to this story. I'm going to leave it to you to decide. I'm not even sure what the deal was, but let's get into it. According to everybody interviewed about the movie in the documentary Never Sleep Again, which is fantastic, great companion piece to this episode, no one really knows why Patricia Arquette didn't come back. But there's a few theories. Rennie Harlan and Rodney Eastman, who plays Joey in the movie, stated her agent had asked for more money, but New Line Cinema wouldn't agree. It's been said that due to Arquette being pregnant at the time of filming, uh, that's kind of weird, okay, about this. This is what's weird about the pregnancy thing, because her child was born in January of 1989, and the film was shot in early 1988. So the pregnancy thing doesn't really hold up because it's almost a full year later that she has the kid. Okay. So it's unlikely she didn't return for being pregnant because at the time of filming, she wasn't pregnant. Or at least she would probably been a few weeks at most. This is a weird floating timeline talking about Patricia Arquette's pregnancy, which is just weird. Tuesday night was brought in and replaced... Patricia Arquette as Kristen Parker. Now, New Line felt that Tuesday night would not be able to carry the film. They said, you know what? Patricia Arquette's a great actress. She would have been the one. She was to be the titular dream master. So when Tuesday night is brought into this project, she's like, oh, this is awesome. I'm going to be the star of the film. And that's when the studio was so pissed off at Arquette, they decided that Kristen should die in the first reel. So her character getting murdered so quickly, that was basically a fuck you uh, to Patricia Arquette and her agent at the time. So let's rewrite the script again. Now, again, we're probably on the 30th, 40th draft of this thing. It's a Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And, you, you know, it's crazy when you think about these movies. Like, it's not rocket science, but they rewrote this script a lot supposedly it's around like there were 52 scripts written, which is just baffles me. So now we have Alice and Alice's abilities originally included those of the dream warriors, but were cut due to the fear of confusing the audience. According to Annette Benson, the casting director, more than 600 actresses auditioned for the role of Alice because now in the new script, we're going forward. Alice is our protagonist and we're going to get a new actress. We're going to make her the star. Lisa Wilcox, who played Alice, was on her honeymoon when she was cast. And she needed to come back to Los Angeles immediately. So she's off having her honeymoon. She's in Hawaii having a nice time. Guess what? You're the star of A Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Get your ass back to Los Angeles. She was actually a natural blonde. She also had to dye her hair red to differentiate herself from Tuesday Night, who had been cast as Kristen. Bob Shea basically said, if we have another blonde, it's going to confuse audiences and they're going to think it's someone else playing Patricia Arquette. They didn't want that. So they told this blonde locked lady, you got to go red. It's the only way we're putting you in this movie. There are references to Alice in the Looking Glass, obviously Alice in Wonderland. 
not only does Freddy say welcome to Wonderland, but Alice literally goes through a looking glass. She she jumps through a mirror, destroying it, which is like one of my favorite gags in the movie. We'll be right back with more of The Offering with Jerry Horror. Now, the most definitive account of the films made by the most infamous and influential studios of the 1980s, Canon Films. The Canon Film Guide Volumes 1 and 2 gives you the true stories from the people who made them, and truth is stranger than fiction. From American Ninjas to Masters of the Universe, from Charles Bronson to Chuck Norris, from Bloodsport to Texas Chainsaw 2, take it over the top on your Superman 4 quest for peace. These books have got it all, folks. A passionate journey through the highs and lows of pure 80s goodness. The Canon Film Guide illustrates all the behind-the-scenes mayhem of one of the most beloved cult movie factories of all time. We at The Offering highly recommend these books. They are essential reading for any and all film buffs. The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1 and 2, available now at Amazon, iTunes, or wherever finer books are sold. Listeners and fans of The Offering can get their hands on their very own The Offering with Jerry Hara merch, now only at Public. Find your own fresh The Offering with Jerry Hara high-quality merchandise, including t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, long sleeves, stickers, and mugs. Just like the show, we've got gear that's mostly horror, always genre. The Offering with Jerry Hara Public Store has everything you need to represent your favorite podcast. Folks, head on over to tpublic.com right now and pick up your very own Offering Tea today. You're listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. Got a question or a story you want to share with me? It might be featured in a future episode. Email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at jerryhara. I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there at jerryhara. Rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might find your review in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Offering. Now back to the show. There's a saying they have on Elm Street. One good nightmare deserves another. (laughs) And you thought the nightmare was over. Well, dream on. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 4. The Dream Master. Finally, someone's ready for Freddy. Now, during production, the writers, the directors, and the producers could not figure out how to kill Freddy. So, like I said, they wrote like 50 screenplays, and they're just saying to themselves, like, how do we how do we end it? Nobody could figure out how to do it because everyone was having so much fun with Freddy Krueger that the last thing on their mind was, oh, yeah, right, he is the bad guy, we do have to kill him. So eventually, during a meeting, they discussed all the possible ways that you could kill a villain or a creature in a film. Shooting, stabbing, burning, etc. They realized that all the methods they were thinking came from external forces. They decided to do just the opposite, which was come up with a way for Freddy to be killed by an internal force. 
Thus, the concept of Freddy's reflection causing the souls of his victims to revolt and tear him apart from the inside was born. Now, this is kind of a weird thing. Okay, we're going to get into it. The release and the reception of this film are a bit wacky. Okay, now again, this movie was made for $13 million. Okay, do you want to know how much it made? I'll tell you how much it made. Opening weekend in U.S. and Canada was $12.8 million. So obviously they made their money back. It's gross worldwide, not including VHS sales, was $49 million. I really, ha- I got to go through the taglines for this film. This movie had great taglines. There were nine different taglines created for the international campaign. You shouldn't have buried me. I'm not dead. All right. That's not bad. The name's Kruger. Freddy Krueger, which they used in the United Kingdom. Obviously, a little riff on James Bond. Uh, this one worked out very well. Are you ready for Freddy? And I, I think that really did. Um, greetings from Hell. That was one that they had used in Europe. I don't know about that. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to bed. It's a little riff on Jaws. Terror beyond your wildest dreams. Eh, kind of generic. Pure evil never really dies. The biggest nightmare of them all. Uh, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know what we're doing at this point. You know, it, it, it is what it is. Uh, Ultimately, they had, I want to say, probably about 10 different uh, effects houses working on this movie, which is insane. I'd love to read. And like, this was a big thing to me. I was going to read off all of these people, but it's like 35 people that, that worked on the special effects. A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 lives and dies by these special effects. Uh, it's the most that were ever created for a film as far as prosthetic effects up until that time. Even if you think about Star Wars and stuff, the level that these guys were working on, and this is the whole thing about 1988. This is the peak. This is when uh, special effects artists were rock stars. You know, you think about Rick Baker, Tom Savini, Stan Winston, uh, creating these indelible creatures, amazing things that we had never seen before. And it's bef- it's obviously before the advent of CGI. And we saw what happened when they tried to remake A Nightmare on Elm Street. They did a lot of effects with CGI rather than practical, and they looked like shit. A lot of it just didn't work, and it, and it came off as ham-fisted and crappy. But you got a little bit of latex and the right people, you can make magic. And that's really what this film was all about, making that magic. Dream Quest visuals. You got Dream Quest visuals work. Let me just go through the people that worked on this movie. You got Howard Berger from KNB. They they did everything. I mean, they've they've worked on everything KNB. Uh, you got John Carl Beekler is on this film. You got Laura Gorman. You got Steve Johnson, Kevin Yeager, Chris Yeager, his brother assisting him. The list goes on and on. It's like an all-star. Like, if you were looking for some of the greatest people working in prosthetic makeup at that time, this is like a who's who. It's literally the dirty dozen multiplied by three of special makeup effects artists. And they're all handling different things. Like, one team was there for the roach transformation. They're handling that. 
There was another team, like Jaeger's team, was doing the chest, where Freddy's, you know, all the souls are coming out of Freddy's chest. So all of these gigantic makeup houses are all working on different things in tandem. So they had this huge set, and essentially what they were doing was, in one room, they were working on one nightmare, and if you ran over to the next set, they were working on another nightmare. So it was pretty crazy. So we're getting a little bit more into the dirt. We got into the little bit of the dirt with Arquette and what happened there. So during the filming of this movie, several of the main actors on set were turned off when their co-star, actress Tuesday Night, and Rennie Harlan's apparent romantic fling, which ultimately resulted in Knight being pampered by Harlan. So even though she's killed off in the first reel, you've got this whole relationship that's going on. And Tuesday night is wrapped because they shot most of this movie as much as they could in sequential order, except for the beach scene. That was the first scene that was shot because it was the most complicated. Tuesday night and Rennie Harlan have this affair. So essentially what happens is she's wrapped, but she's not gone. And according to what I've heard, most of the people on set did not like her. She was, she was not liked and thought to be a distraction for Harlan. They're both guilty in this. They're both guilty parties. It's not like this is some woman's fault. It's not like that at all. So at a certain point, they started putting up signs saying, you know, no Tuesday night on the set. And it, it got really out of control because at a certain point, the cast and crew took a stand and said to Harlan, they're like, look, we love you. We love what you're doing. This is a great movie, but you need to get her off the fucking set because this is absolutely not working. Um, now, it was just a rumor. People would say, oh, they're not really dating. They're just friendly. They're friends. But I mean, I think now we're looking back all these years later. It's kind of easy to see what was going on. In Never Sleep Again, the documentary that I had talked about, they get into it a little bit, but it's something that really hasn't been discussed. Some people say that it affected Tuesday night's career because she was difficult to work with and kept showing up on set and that it might have affected her opportunities when it came to other films. I don't know. Again, this is just a rumor. And... Most of the cast and crew will tell you they fucking hated Tuesday night. So it's a good thing when she ultimately gets killed and she was thrown I'm trying to think it's a furnace. She gets thrown into one of the gigantic furnaces that, you know, Freddie lives in furnace world and uh, she gets thrown in there. And supposedly the cast and crew had a party that night because they fucking hated her. She was not well liked on the set at all. There's a lot of little references, like there's a Hills Have Eyes poster in Kincaid's room. There, the diner in the film is called the Crave Inn. Get it? Get it? Now, when Joey and Kincaid, the characters from part three, came into this movie, they were excited because they're like, hey, maybe we get to flesh these characters out a little bit more, go on another adventure. And... Early on, they kill off those characters. I mean, it's you're barely 20 minutes into the movie, and they they kill off Kristen, they kill off Joey, they kill off Kincaid. So it's like these were some of the larger protagonists that were in the third film, and instantly they were killed. 
uh, Harlan's reasoning for doing this was that people wouldn't see it coming. And I'll be honest with you, uh, as a kid, I was like, wow, when they killed those characters off, I was like, holy shit. It kind of puts that momentum into the movie where you're like, anything can happen. You know, nobody is safe at one point or another. Any of these characters can be taken out. And I think that's that's a very interesting quality. But at the same time, there's a world where you have all of these Dream Warrior kids and they could have got like, okay, if they made Dream Warriors now, it would have been a Harry Potter type of deal. They would have casted these kids very young and there would have been reoccurring adventures, which is very similar to Stranger Things, where these kids would have this life bond together because of being terrorized by Freddy Krueger. Speaking of which, this was the first film outside of three where they really started to get the makeup down. So, you know, when you're when you're doing the first film, Robert Englund is in the makeup chair for like 12 hours. And then each movie, as they got better and figured out how to do it, this was the first movie where they're like three hours, four hours, we can get all of his makeup done. And Robert Englund was very thankful for that. In fact... He stated now, because after Freddy vs. Jason, he's done with the prosthetic work. He's like, I really don't want to go back and do that. But you know what? I think it's really about what you're putting in his bank account because he just was in Stranger Things Season 4 and he has this huge, all these makeup effects to his eyes and his face. So I think, I think maybe he'd put back on the makeup. Let me go off on a little tangent here. Can I go off on a tangent? People are like, oh, because now with Stranger Things season four, people are hot. They're hot for Freddy. They want Freddy. And they're saying, you know, like, can't we do this? Can't we do that? Look, I don't think the solution is making another live action film. And I've said this before. My pitch is this. You do an animated series with Freddy Krueger. You do it for HBO Max where you don't have to worry. You can go R-rated, go NC-17, go crazy. Make it the the horniest, bloodiest thing you've ever seen, and you don't have to put Robert Englund in the makeup. All you have to do is have him record lines, and I think that that's the way you do it. It would be perfect. The episodic nature kind of lends itself to the mythos and to the franchise. So if you're looking for a a way to revitalize this and still have Robert Englund play Freddy Krueger, that's probably the best way to do it. And again... I did not like the remake. I kind of hate it. I think it's terrible. But Jackie Earl Haley was very good. I think in another multiverse, there's a whole series of Jackie Earl Haley films. He was good. He just had absolutely nothing to work with. I even dug the makeup job. I was like, okay, this is a cool direction to take it in. It's more real world. It's funny because if you look at that Jackie Earl Haley, the makeup job they did on him in the... um, the remake, you look now again, the parallels at Vecna and you're like, oh wait, it's like a real burn victim. It's like, that's what he would kind of look like. This is the only film in the franchise to have an original song in the opening credits. It had never been done. In in the second half of part three, they have Dawkins uh, Dream Warriors, which is absolutely amazing. They used different songs, but this was the only one that was created for the film, even in part six, you would, you know, Freddy's dead, the final nightmare, you would have uh, I'm awake now by the Goo Goo Dolls, which is a fucking awesome song. If you haven't heard it, I'm awake now by the Goo Goo Dolls, 
Shazam that shit, make it happen. It's really good. Now, um, initially, they had to keep rewriting this movie as they went along. And as they did that, things kind of got wackier and wackier. And um, Danny Hassel, uh, his character of Dan, had no name. And he kind of just chose the name on set. So that's how they were working throughout this entire film. They were going by the seat of their pants. There was just rewrites every day. The car junkyard set from A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is featured in Kincaid's Nightmare. The set was originally conceptualized by uh, production designer Mick Strawn, who worked as the art director of part three. Um, It's funny because this junkyard set also holds the distinction of being filmed at the same location for both films. The set was filmed and built in a landfill. Okay. So they, they, they used it in the third movie. They used it in the fourth movie and it was built where people dump garbage. See, that's what I'm thinking. Nowadays, if they did this, it would all be on a projected green screen, like the way they do the, the Mandalorian with, you know, previs. They just wouldn't, they wouldn't subject a bunch of people to go, <laughs> to go shoot stuff in a landfill. That, that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. Only in 1988, folks. This film is distinguished as the only film in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise to feature a rap song during the end credits. But it's also the only one where Freddie raps alongside the popular rap group at the time, the Fat Boys. Are you ready for Freddie? Okay. Because, you know, Houdini had, they had done a song, you know, and that had played in the third movie after the initial credits, but it's pretty cool. I mean, you know, there's things like this, like after they did the Dokken music video, which was like huge because... The Dokken music video, Dream Warriors, was the first music video that was put on the VHS. So they kind of continued that same tradition. So when you got A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, the Dream Master, if you went all the way to the end of the credits, you were treated to a music video with the Fat Boys and Freddy Krueger. And believe it or not, that was a big deal in 1988. You know, we didn't have a lot of stuff going on. So if you had a music video that you could watch on VHS... That was that was a big deal, believe it or not. I mean, we take a lot of these things for granted, but that's part of the magic of why these films worked. There was just that little level of TLC, you know? You watched other movies, and they, they didn't, you know, you didn't... I mean, everything was music videos back then. You know, it's like, you, you look back, like I was re-watching Rocky IV, and Rocky IV is essentially a music video. It's just a long-form video clocks in at under 90 minutes. It's a perfect movie. Recently, Stallone had recut that film. You can watch it, the director's cut. And it's cool, and it adds some stuff with Carl Weathers, which I appreciate, and it makes the film a little bit more serious. But at the end of the day, the original cut of Rocky IV is perfect. It's it's like um, it's like the mosquito that's fossilized in amber. It's perfect as it is. Don't mess with it. Yeah, so this movie, they shot stuff, and it didn't work. They were, again, because of the rewrites. So they were left with this movie that they had the skeleton to. They knew, like, okay, this, this, and this need to happen. But there were multiple takes. Um, 
There were entirely different tones of what was shot. And again, Rennie Harlan's whole thing was, let's blow this up. Let's make it. Freddy's not scary. Let's let's really have fun with this. Let's make it a big show. And I think um, that's part of why this film works. When you when you distill it down to its base and core ingredients, this is Freddy firing on all cylinders. And that's why the movie works, because it's everything you wanted to see. You know, Freddy isn't just a maniac dream slasher who's hiding in the dark. No, he's full front and center. Robert England's name is right above the title. This is Freddy's movie, which kind of leads you to a problem. And and this is this is kind of formulaic of what happens in a lot of these later slasher entries. The boogeyman or the villain is the star of the film. So what happens is you really don't care about the characters anymore. Especially like when you talk about Friday the 13th, like they're just fodder. They're just there to be murdered. And not only that, you watch Elm Street 3 and you love these other characters and they just get systematically murdered in the first 20 minutes of the movie. So it becomes very hard for the audience to invest into these characters. And some people, you know, when you're a kid and you watch these movies and you look at older kids, you know, they're playing teenagers, but they're all in their 20s. This is the way life works. You say, oh man, these kids are so cool. I want to be just like these kids. But that's only something that a child does. When you watch these movies now, you don't really care about those characters. You know that Freddy Krueger is the star. You know he's going to kill everybody. Most of you who aren't old enough do not remember a sitcom called Just the Ten of Us, which was on Channel 7. It was a spinoff of Growing Pains, and it was about this guy named Coach Lubbock, and he had all these really hot daughters. And this was a big thing, especially for young people, to watch these hot young girls on this show. But Brooke Thies, who plays Debbie, is the third Lubbock sister on the sitcom, following Joanne Willett and Heather Langenkamp, who played Nancy Thompson in Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, she played Nancy Thompson in the first movie, the third movie, and then plays herself in A New Nightmare. But it was really kind of funny because here's this wholesome family show and Two of the stars are both scream queens in one of the hottest franchises of the 80s. It was kind of weird, you know? But I always enjoyed that show. I'm not going to lie. I was a horny little kid, and I would watch it, and it would be like, oh, hey, yeah. But that's the way things were. So, how'd this film do? Well, it actually did pretty well, to be perfectly honest with you. I think I, I had prefaced this before that... It had an opening weekend of twelve point eight million. It made, it cost thirteen million, made that twelve point eight, and ultimately went on to make about fifty million dollars. It was a hit. For all intents and purposes, a Nightmare on Elm Street four, the Dream Master was the fully realized vision of Wes Craven, of Bob Shea, of Robert Englund. There's a lot of moving parts, and it's not just one thing. It's not just like, Robert Englund is great as Freddy, and you can kind of do anything you want, and they realized how malleable he was as a product. But this is the zenith. This is when Freddy Krueger ruled the world. He was literally omnipresent, whether it was on Headbangers Ball in the Dokken video, 
whether it was Freddy's Nightmares, which would be on at 11 p.m., they wouldn't let, even though it aired in syndication, they wouldn't let the show air before 10 p.m. because they were afraid it would corrupt and destroy the morality and ethics of youth, which, Jesus Christ, uh, whatever. I'm not going to get into that. But yeah, you couldn't go anywhere. Um, Freddy Krueger had trading cards. Freddy Krueger had candy. It was This summer was absolutely insane. Um, just to go back into that time period, I used to go upstate with my family and I would go with my cousin, Scott, who was much older than me, not much, but at least a couple of years that he could drive and do stuff. And I was still a dumb little booger eating kid. Um, August 19th, 1988, you better believe we were there August 20th. Um, we went to the small theater that we had seen all the other Friday, the 13th films at. And it was kind of a rite of passage and a tradition. This was the first Freddy movie that I saw in theaters. I had only experienced the first three on VHS, which is crazy to think, you know, that I was this kid. Um, And part two is one of my favorites because everybody would either rent part one or they'd rent part three, but nobody wanted the second one that was vaguely homoerotic, but we couldn't put our finger on it just yet. So that was my Nightmare on Elm Street. It was my de facto go-to because I knew that it would be in stock. Most people didn't rent the second one. They weren't a a fan of Freddy's Revenge. But I saw this movie in theaters, and let me tell you something. It was packed, and it played to the right audience, and kids ate it up. I mean, this was a huge movie. A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 on VHS. I mean, usually, you know, they talk about like first pressings and second pressings. They went through six pressings of this VHS, which is like unheard of, which means that it it kept renting. Um, Between this and the third film, these were the first in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise that they were willing to do sell through, which at that time, a VHS tape cost about a hundred bucks and a video store had to buy it and then make their money off the rentals. You know, the more you buy, the cheaper it got. But this was a turning point. Freddy Krueger was big enough where they said, all right, we're going to put these movies out and you're going to be able to buy them for 20 bucks. And that was a big deal. People don't understand. You know, if you don't remember, you weren't there. It was a big deal that you could just walk into a store, buy that VHS and watch it as many fucking times until your eyeballs fell out. That is if you could scrape together the 20 bucks because this is 20 bucks in 1988, which is a lot more. It's almost like 50 bucks now, if that makes sense. Seems like a lot of money. I love these films. I love the Nightmare on Elm Street films. I I think they're brilliant. I have a Freddy Krueger tattoo on my leg. It's one of my favorite tattoos. Shout out to Billy Vegas uh, from Tattoo Afterlife who did it. Fantastic portrait. I mean, this is it. This was my indoctrination into really being a horror fan. The first time that I cracked the Fangoria and I had to know who did the special effects and I had to know you know, how did they do this? How did they make this magic? And to this day, some of these effects are still incredible. I mean, if you go and look into the history of, of this film and what it brought to special effects, the industry as a whole, it's a game changer. And again, I think it's my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Not just because of the sentimental attachment, but because it delivers. It gives Freddy Krueger the perfect vehicle, the perfect vessel to do what he does best. And that is 
manipulate and torture teenagers, teenagers played by people in their late 20s and early 30s, nonetheless. But it's the summation. It's probably the zenith of the character. And at this point, he was red hot. Got records on the radio. He's on MTV. He's on your regular TV and syndication. You can go see him in a theater. So I think, in turn, as much as I love this film, it's the tipping point. Because once you get to Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, people are burnt out. They're literally burnt out on the Freddy Krueger um, franchise. And the same thing happened with Jason Takes Manhattan. It, it got to that point where in 89, they just reached saturation and the market was changing. And you got things like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You got Ghostbusters 2. You got Batman. And Batman's the real game changer. It's the changing of the guard where you have these teens who had expendable cash in the 80s and they were going to see these movies. And then at a certain point, Hollywood stepped in and said, you know what, we're going to start making movies for young people. And that's really what 1988 is about. It's this entire industry kind of turning over and making movies for the youth. And it's kind of a really cool thing because they realize that kids have this expendable, disposable income and they'll fucking go see four Freddy films. But five was too much. And it's like I said, it's like a, you know, flying too close to the sun like Icarus. It, it just burned out. But for that one shining moment in 1988, Freddy Krueger ruled the world. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hope you're willing to take the journey with me back in time as we explore all these wonderful films of 1988. And I hope that everything is good with you and that you do good things. And wow, I've said the word good too much. Folks, I really appreciate you tuning in for this episode. Maybe it's your first episode and you haven't heard all the good stuff from the first season. So all kinds of goodies. We get into Wes Craven's Scream. I know what you did last summer. There's a lot of good things that you need to explore in that first season. Tell your friends about the show. You know, like, subscribe, hit me up at Jerry Hara. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on all the social medias. That's fine. I want to thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And I hope it finds you well. Mostly horror, but always genre. You've been listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. I'm very sorry. Produced by Pete Bune. If you have a question or a story you want to share with me, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit us up at Twitter at jerryhara or on Instagram at jerryhara. You get in the picture? Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are provided for you and your family. I want you to enjoy. Just join us next time for another offering. I'm Tom. My partner Mike and I have been friends and co-workers for a long time. And at work, we're known for our daily water cooler conversations about TV shows and movies we are currently watching. Whether we're arguing over which Marvel TV show is the best or agreeing about which Netflix original movie is the worst, the pop culture conversation is always popping on Two Brothers at a Water Cooler. 
You can listen to Two Brothers at a Water Cooler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Subscribe and share today. This has been a Sick Boy Wolfgang production. Thank you for listening.